All right, so there's a book that came out a few years ago, and um, it's this little book, and it's by a historian named Larry Hurtado, and it's got this title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Okay, now the book was just okay, but the title is amazing, because if you know anything about the first few hundred years uh, after Christ, it was basically a terrible, terrible time to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, You would think it might be awesome to be on the ground floor of the greatest movement in history, especially since someone you knew probably knew someone who knew Jesus, like it was within a few generations of him being alive. But the truth is, this was a very hard time to follow Christ. Becoming a Christian at this time, it did not improve your image or your status at all. Very much the opposite. Uh, the, the religious uh, expectation in the Roman world at the time was that you could worship whatever God you wanted as long as you also acknowledge the divinity of the empire or the emperor and the other gods as well. So the culture was happy to let you worship Jesus, more than willing to do that. I, I will say the idea of a resurrected guy walking around again did freak people out a little bit. But as long as you uh, also gave your pinch of spice offering to the local deity, and as long as you also showed up to participate in the religious ceremonies for your professional guild, go ahead, worship whoever you want. No harm, no foul, except the problem was the Christians didn't do this, did they? They, they worshipped God alone, and this made people very angry at them. They, they were moving against the culture in this way. So when more than half of Rome burned to the ground when Nero was the emperor in about 60 AD, he found it very convenient and easy to blame the Christians in town. They were small, easy to scapegoat, and this sort of set off this, this first initial round of persecution against the church. It, you could find a Christian and just beat him up if you wanted to, because, hey, they set Rome on fire. It was there. It wasn't true, by the way. But what this did was it set off persecution throughout the empire, and then it got worse. By 110 AD, professing Christianity in the Roman Empire had become an official state capital offense. The bishop of Antioch, a pastor named Ignatius, would not declare the divinity of the emperor, Domitian, and was brought to Rome and killed for his allegiance to Jesus as the only God and king. By the year 303, there were official state decrees ordering the destruction of churches, the gathering of any Christian books and literature, including the Bible, so it could be burned, the immediate dismissal of Christians from any government office, including the military, and the imprisonment of clergy. You would have had to come see me in the county jail in the year 303. In 304, a Roman edict demanded that every Christian offer sacrifices to the local pagan deities. And when you did this, you got basically like a certificate, like an official certificate. Here's your pass. You worship the other gods. Congratulations. If you were ever found without one of those certificates, you could be killed. In his book, Hurtado sums it up this way. Those with aspirations of social acceptance. Okay, so in other words, those weird folks who like want to be liked by other people, you know, and want to have access to upward mobility in their careers, like those weirdos. Anyone with aspirations of social acceptance would have found being a Christian a distinct disadvantage. Those who embrace Christian faith could often expect to suffer contempt, ostracism, harassment, even denunciation to the judicial authorities. And yet, okay, and yet, uh, this new religion, 
this new gospel, this new announcement of a God who had raised from death itself, absolutely thrived in that cultural climate. Uh, a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection in 40 AD, there were only a few thousand Christians in the whole world. 300 years later, there were over 6 million. Okay, that's a 40% increase every decade for 250 years. What would a 40% increase of Christians look like in a decade in the Roaring Fork Valley? What about in America or the world over the course of hundreds of years? This was an explosion of faith during one of the worst times and places to be a Christian. Objectively speaking, measured by your life getting harder or easier based on this decision. During centuries of targeted state-sponsored persecution and executions, Christianity absolutely exploded. What could possibly account for that? That makes no sense, right? I mean, things that cost you more, that make your life harder, that, that, those are the things we tend to avoid, right? Or aren't they? The things that bring comfort and ease and pleasure and the path of least resistance, that's what we gravitate towards, right? Or maybe not. You might know the story of Ernest Shackleton, uh, he, he had this quest to, to be the first one to walk on the South Pole, right, to discover the South Pole. And in the early 1900s, he set off on three separate expeditions to accomplish that. It's a bit of a tragic story. He never made it. Um, and the third expedition was on a ship called Endurance. That's the one you've heard of, if you've heard of him. Uh, they got stuck in the ice in the South Pole for like, or the Antarctic for like, 10 months or something, and they thought they were certain everyone was going to die. Miraculously, everybody made it home from that expedition. But my favorite part of the story about Ernest Shackleton is this. When he was trying to go recruit his crew for this third voyage, he put an ad in the newspaper that just read this. This was all it said. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Period. The end. Okay, that's not the strongest elevator pitch I've ever heard. But do you know what happened? The response was absolutely overwhelming. He needed 27 crew spots to fill and 5,000 men signed on to his expedition based on that ad in the newspaper alone. They didn't join up because it was going to be easy, obviously. Right? They also didn't join up just because it was going to be hard. You can do hard things anywhere. You don't have to go freeze to death in the South Pole to do something hard. Why would they join, want to join an expedition like that? Something about it was deeply compelling to them. Something about it struck a chord in, deep inside of them, some sort of call to adventure, some sort of desire to do something that mattered with their life. Uh, it resonated with their hopes and their dreams for who they would become, what they wanted to do with their time on earth. It was such a compelling invitation, a beautiful vision. The, the cost, the hurdles, the difficulty was a distant afterthought. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why on earth would anyone become a Christian in the 21st century? We're gonna to get to the, the answers to those questions in a minute, but for now, hear this. The only way anyone would voluntarily sign up to follow Jesus and bear the costs and the difficulties and the duty that it implies 
as if there is something deeply compelling about the vision that God lays out for his community here on earth. Something that transcends this question, is it easy or is it hard? Something that stirs our souls deeply enough so that that question, is it comfortable or costly, fades into the background and sort of fails to matter. And it's that calling into a compelling community that James offers us in our passage this morning. Um, Today, we're going to look at just one verse from the book of James. It's probably the most famous one in the book for good reason. God holds out an invitation that if you hear it, it will captivate your imagination. It will resonate deeply with your hopes for your life. And a life lived like this, along the contours of God's design for human flourishing, uh, following Jesus on his mission, will be a deeply compelling community for a watching world. All right, this is a summary of the Christian life, a calling into a compelling community of Jesus' followers. James 1, 27, last verse in the first chapter. Here's what it says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James summarizes a life that's pleasing to God, a life following Jesus that's compelling to the world in in two basic callings, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You might be thinking, like I thought when I read this, what's so compelling about that? Doesn't that just sound sort of like basic human decency? That's just like being a good person. That's just being kind, and it is. But as you drill down on this, I think you'll discover much more. So let's look at each one of these before we return to our original question for the morning. All right, so first, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In the ancient world, uh, there was no social safety net like there is today. So there was no Medicaid, there was no Social Security, no NGOs that were uh, sort of committed to caring for the vulnerable and the needy in society. You had to fend for yourself. Uh, You're out there on your own. And it was also a very patriarchal society. So women were technically and legally second-class citizens. They, um, when it came to financial, legal, cultural access, they just didn't have what was available to men. Their testimony didn't count in court. The wealth, family wealth was passed on to sons largely and not daughters. And so the most vulnerable members of society were those who were disconnected from a man in their family who could care for them. In other words, the widows and the orphans. Their options were limited. Their prospects were even worse. They could be abused and cheated without any uh, repercussions. They couldn't stand up for themselves in court. Um, They didn't have a court-appointed special advocate group working on their behalf. So this calling for Christians to visit orphans and widows. It's not only to literally find and care for kids without parents, it is that, or widowed women, but it's actually this bigger calling to have a disposition, a heart as we move out into the world for the most vulnerable among us, for the most needy, for the most hurting, for the most neglected people in our world. So today, this wouldn't just include orphans and widows, this would include minorities and immigrants. It would include the poor, it would include those on the margins of our society, it would include the sick, it would include the hungry, the afraid, the shut-ins, maybe the elderly, 
It would include those suffering from mental unhealth. It would include the sad and the depressed and the lonely. As I say this, who comes into your mind? And, and not just the, you know, the group of children in Africa that you've never met before, but like actual people in your life who you personally know. Who, who is in need? Who do you know that, what would it look like? Who is in need and what would it look like for you to go visit them in that space even now? This is actually one reason I love our church's relationship with CASA that I was talking about earlier. They're not an explicitly Christian organization, um, but they care for the very people we as a church are called to care for, right? So we have two folks at our church that sit on their board. Um, we sponsor their 5K. We provide lunch. We do this because we want to communicate in tangible ways. We're for you. We love your mission. You're helping our valley. We're in. We're in. So how are you in? Where are you in? And with who are you in? What does it look like for you to follow this particular command in your family? I think one of the best things that could ever be said of any church by a non-Christian is this. I don't agree with them, okay? Uh, The preacher believes crazy stuff. Have you heard him talk about the resurrection? He actually believes that, okay? I would never myself go to that church, uh, but... If they disappeared tomorrow from our valley, we would be worse off than we are today, right? They're generous to those inside and outside their congregation. They don't just care for their own, but the needy among us. They're a gift to our valley. Visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. That's the first part of this calling, and it's the first part of the dream for our church. This is who we want to grow to become. Here's the second one. Keep yourself unstained from the world. This one is about integrity. It's about personal purity. It's about righteousness and holiness before a holy God. This is about hearing his word and following wherever he commands. All right, keeping oneself unstained from the world. This is about what we look at online when no one is around. This is how we handle our finances and fill out our taxes. This is integrity kind of stuff. How much money we invest in the church and other kingdom causes. This is about our thought life that no one else ever has access to. Are we truly forgiving one another or are we nursing grudges over years? It's, how we, it's about how we speak to other, about others when they're not there. Do we talk about other people or do we talk to them? when we have differences and difficulties. So this is about integrity and duty and purity and those other kinds of words that are very out of fashion right now in our world. Proverbs 22 says, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. And in 1 Peter 1 we read, But it's uh, he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Taken together, these two commands, it's a vision of the whole Christian life. It's two big missions that contain everything we're called to do and to be, to represent Jesus in this world. And to get back to our first question, this is exactly what the early church was living out that, that made them so dynamic and unique and compelling, even in a difficult circumstances. So, Last week, you kind of got like a 
you know, primer on recent astrophysics. This, 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 uh, this week it's a primer on ancient church history, okay? You never know what you're going to get, so keep showing up. Um, Diognetius was a historian who wrote in the second century, and this is what he said about the church. Christians, they're not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. Nowhere do they live in cities of their own. They're, they're not separatists. And they don't speak some unusual dialect or practice an eccentric lifestyle. In other words, they're one of us. They're among us. And they follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate a remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. In other words, Christians in the first three centuries were very, very normal and very, very weird at the same time. Here's what made them weird. They marry like everyone else. This is, again, he's writing in the second century. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they don't expose their offspring. This is how they got rid of unwanted babies at the time. Abortion was too risky, so they would leave their babies out on trash heaps if they didn't want them anymore. They share their food, but not their wives. In other words, high value on hospitality and a high value on the Bible's sexual ethic. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. High value on personal purity, just like James calls us to. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They're in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. High value on social justice and concern for the poor. They're cursed, yet they bless. They're insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When they're punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Here's the deal. Christians are weird. You're supposed to be weird. They were weird back in the day. You're called to be weird today. But it's that very weirdness that makes it so compelling and so attractive and so different to a watching world. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? And why on earth would anyone become a Christian today? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he, he summarizes a number of the historians' answers to that question. And he thinks there's basically kind of five characteristics of the early church, five um, things that made following Jesus compelling and attractive. As you listen to these, I'll just name them briefly, but as you listen... Think of those two big callings that James has put on our plate this morning um, as we look at these. Okay, so first, the early church, it was multiracial and it experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. Because no other community at that time could bridge racial and ethnic divides like the Christian church could. It was attractive, it was multicultural in the most attractive way. Number two, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. So it was expected that you care for your own people back in the day, just like it's expected that you care for your own people today. But it was Christians' promiscuous help given to anyone, any race, any color, any creed, any language, that was unprecedented in the ancient world. Number three, it was a community committed to the sanctity of life. So it wasn't simply that Christians opposed abortion. Like we said earlier, abortion was actually dangerous and pretty rare. The more common practice was called infant exposure, like we just said. Um, unwanted infants, especially girls, would just be left out 
on garbage heaps or in ditches. Um, obviously, Christians were against this, but instead of just being politically against this or theoretically against this, in that day, Christians were the only ones who went out to those garbage heaps and retrieved the child and brought them into their own home and raised them as their own. They were the only ones who were willing to do that. Four, it was a sexual counterculture. We've kind of looked at this already too. Romans and Greeks believed that sex was just an appetite. Okay, it was just something when you got hungry, you, you fulfilled it. And if you were married, the wife couldn't have sex with anybody else, but it was expected that the husband would. This is just the double standard of the day. Of course guys would sleep around. Who can stop them? Prostitution was pervasive, but the Christians brought about the first sexual revolution in history. Not only did they abide by the Bible's ethic and only married people slept together, but there was no double standard anymore. Men and women were equal for the first time in this way. Um, and lastly, the early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. In other words, it was civil. Okay, it was kind. It, they forgave one another. They, they talked well to people. Um, even when their values stood in stark contrast to the surrounding culture, they didn't yell at each other on Twitter. They served people, okay? So, they were forgivers, not fighters. And here's what Tim Keller points out. And this is what I personally find so challenging, but also so compelling. Here's what he says. Two of those things sound pretty liberal, don't they? I mean, all that emphasis on racial equality and multi-ethnicity. Uh, and two of those things sound pretty conservative, right? Don't they? Sexual purity and pro-life. One of them, by the way, doesn't sound Democrat or Republican. That's the nice, non-retaliatory bridge-building part. Who, who does that today, right? But this is what he says. If you look at those characteristics, if we were like that today, would we be a liberal church or a conservative church? And his answer is yes. Yes. We would be both. Are you starting to see why this vision of following Jesus is so compelling, how it can be so compelling today? The church was deeply committed to social justice, care for the poor, racial reconciliation. In other words, some of today's most progressive agendas. And the church was deeply committed to personal holiness, family values, marital fidelity, pro-life policies, duty, loyalty, some of today's most conservative uh, initiatives. Some of us are going to enjoy part one better. We just have a more progressive heart. Some of us are going to enjoy part two better. We're just conservatives at the end of the day. But what's going to make us distinctive and different and a gift to the world around us? It's not our partisanship. It's our Christianity, all right? A holistically loving, worshiping life, following Jesus, full gospel allegiance. A pastor that I follow says, if, you walk with, if your walk with Jesus does not occasionally confuse both your liberal and your conservative friends, you're likely not following Jesus very closely. Jesus was not wed to any one earthly political system. His kingdom, it's not of this world. It's weird. And you're going to be weird if you follow him. Visit widows and orphans. Keep oneself unstained from the world. What a compelling way to behave and live as a community. But here's the most compelling news of all as we wrap up. God calls us to be strange, countercultural community that's different 
to the world around us in a compelling way. And the only reason that's beautiful and not a burden that we can't carry, the only reason that's even possible is because the power of Jesus already at work amongst us, all right? It, this is exactly how Jesus treated us long before he asked us to treat others this way in his name. So our motivation to love the orphan will only grow when we realize we were the spiritual orphans to start with, and we were the ones that got adopted into his family. Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Our hearts will grow to care for the widow when we drink deeply of this truth that long before God called us to care for her, we were the widowed ones. We were alone, we were vulnerable and weak, but God married his church. He, he found his bride, didn't he? Isaiah 54 says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel, he's your redeemer. And long before God freed us and commissioned us to remain unstained from the world, Jesus lived the perfectly pure, righteous, unstained life and just freely applied it to his people. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The church will grow into a compelling community when it rests on this compelling gospel, when it drinks of it, when it becomes our DNA, when it gets inside of us. The great news that Jesus has empowered us to love others and worship him by his grace. Christianity is weird. The Bible never claims anything else. Our job is to keep it weird in all the right ways, okay? And to enjoy God's unbounded love, to extend that same gift to those around us and who knows what he might do in our time and in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, for James, for this challenging calling to follow you in the world, to care for the orphan and the widow in their affliction, to remain unstained from the world around us. God, these are a wide-ranging calling, a, a wide-ranging uh, claim on our life that you make, I pray that you would empower us to step into it. I pray that your power of love, your power of hope would flow through us and that there would be something distinctly different, compelling, attractive about the way your church moves through the world, the way we treat each other, the way we talk, the way we give, the way we serve. God, help us represent you in the world. Be with us. Amen.